I'm Kristen Seavey. This is Murder, She Told. Patricia Newsom was born on June 20th, 1957. And in just 18 years, she would be dead, murdered by an unseen monster. And her fate would be hidden from her family for 48 years. Her parents were Don and Betty Newsom. Don was born in 1929, and so was Betty. Don grew up dirt poor in the Midwest and was a cattle driver as a young man. He grew up without a father. His dad died in 1929 when he was a baby. Though Don had many siblings, he was the youngest of his father's six children. As he grew up, his independence isolated him from the family. This is his second youngest child, Marianne. Dad was kind of complicated in a lot of ways, I guess everybody is. He was mostly quiet, never talked about feelings. That wasn't his thing at all. An incredible voice. Everybody in my family, except for me, sings. And my dad just had the most beautiful voice. And he would also sing a lot of cowboy songs because when he was a young man, he did a lot of cattle drives. He had a very difficult childhood, didn't have a father, had some abusive stepfathers. So basically he and his brother both took off when they were very young to seek their fortunes. So he did the cattle drive thing until he was old enough to enlist. In 1951, Don and Betty, who were both 22, got married in Philadelphia, near her family. She was a staunch Irish Catholic like her mother and father, who were Irish immigrants. She was a registered nurse at Chestnut Hill Hospital, and Don was an ambitious enlisted Navy man. Over his long career, he climbed to the highest rank, E9, Master Chief Petty Officer. Don was Baptist, but he converted to Catholicism to marry Betty. In fact, he was baptized on an aircraft carrier. They started having kids right away. Their first child, John, was born two years after they married. And soon after came Patricia, then Peter, and then Marianne. The family moved frequently with Don's work. At one point, they were stationed in Braintree, Massachusetts, near Quincy Naval Yard. In 1964, Don, at age 35, retired from the Navy and started his second career. He got his MBA and then worked for many years at Con Ed, the electrical utility company in New York City, as an account manager. A few years later, in 1968, a tragedy would befall the Newsoms that would change the future of their entire lives. Betty, the glue of the family, got cancer and died on December 14th near her family in Philly at Chestnut Hill Hospital. She was just 39 years old, and she left her four children without a mother. John was 15, Patricia was 11, Peter was 9, and Marianne was just 3. I think my dad pretty much shut down emotionally. I only have what I hear to compare the dad that I knew with the dad other people knew. I, I think... Everything made my dad very sad when all that happened and he shut down. The kids were scattered for a while. They were closest to Betty's extended family. So Patricia went to live with her mom's sister in Ohio. Marianne lived with her maternal grandparents in Philly. 
and the boys lived with other family. Within a year or two, the young widow married again. His new bride was half his age. 20-year-old Mary Ann Wigmore was just two years older than his oldest son, John. John never got along well with his dad, and around the time he got married, he left and would never live with them again. She was younger than him. I think she was very ill-prepared to be a parent to adolescents that were going through this kind of trauma. Don's new wife bore the same name as his second youngest child, so I'll refer to her by her full name, Mary Ann Wigmore, and I'll use Mary Ann alone to refer to his daughter. Within a year of their marriage, Don's final child, James Newsom, was born in Philly. The next year, the whole Newsom clan, minus John, moved to Morganville, New Jersey, as Don was starting his career at Con Ed. Everything changed because we moved from Pennsylvania, where we lived, where my mom's family was, to New Jersey. And when we made that move, we were completely disconnected from my mother's family. Not through their intentions, just through, apparently, that's just how my parents wanted it. I have to include my dad in that because my father could have said, they're my kids, I want them to have contact with them for whatever reason he chose not to. It was 1972 and the family had begun a new chapter of their lives in a new place. Don was 43, Mary Ann Wigmore was 23, Patricia was the oldest of the kids at about 14, Peter was right behind her, and Mary Ann was seven. The baby, Jimmy, was just one. Morganville, New Jersey, was about an hour and a half from Manhattan, so Don would take the train into the city each day. The three older kids attended local Catholic schools, something Don had committed to his late wife to continue. For the children, the church was a powerful connection to the memory of their mother and a source of consistency in their lives. For a brief time, the family was stable, and Marianne remembered weekends at the flea market with her dad. For a reason that will remain a mystery for 50 years, around 1973, Patricia was sent off to a boarding school. Patricia did not get along very well with my stepmother. It's a hard dynamic for anybody. But things, I know for a fact that things in that house were taken out of proportion. And the way it was told to me was that Patricia was causing trouble for the kids. The kids being myself and my little brother. So she just wasn't prepared to be a parent. Didn't get along with Patricia at all. So I guess the easiest thing to do was ship her as far away as she could. Dad was always working, just always working. He stayed busy. When he wasn't working all around the house, he was at work. And so my stepmother started drinking a lot, and things just went from bad to worse. And I think that's how a lot of things happen with Patricia, as far as bearing the brunt of somebody else not knowing what they were doing. It's around this time that Marianne's memories of her older sister fade into nothingness, her sister's long brown hair and hazel eyes vanished from her life. She doesn't remember Patricia ever coming home from that boarding school. It's unclear why she was sent. Rumors of her having difficulties with her stepmother predominate Marianne's thinking. We don't know where she spent her summers, Christmases, and spring breaks, if not with her family. In family lore, Patricia disappeared from that boarding school on her own volition. 
having run away with a friend, to be free of the rules and consequences against which she was chafing. Patricia was about 15 when she was sent away. By 18, she was murdered and dumped in a ditch. What happened during those pivotal three years is what an army of people today are trying to unravel. For the Newsom family, though, life went on. In 1977, Don and Mary Ann Wigmore separated. Don gave his kids to her to finish raising. Peter was already 18 and would soon leave the house, but Mary Ann was 12 and Jimmy was 6, and they had much of their childhood ahead of them. Don found a new woman who lived in Matawan, New Jersey, his daily train stop. He moved into the city on the Lower East Side, perhaps with Joan. The family isn't certain. Marianne Wigmore took the kids and moved to Ocean City, New Jersey. It was around this time that Marianne realized she might never see her older sister again. When we moved away from that house, and I didn't know where my sister was at that point, I knew I was never going to see her again. For a long time, I thought maybe she was buried in the backyard. We had an in-ground pool, and we had filled that up. And it's scary when you live in a house where you don't really know if your sister is dead in the backyard or not. Not that my father would have killed her, but I could see somebody dying accidentally in that house. But I just knew I wasn't going to see her again after we moved. Her stepmother forbid her from talking about her biological mother, Betty, her eldest brother, John, or her sister, Patricia. In 1979, Don and Mary Ann Wigmore officially divorced, and within months, Don married Joan. You just learned that you did not mention things. You don't talk about family business outside the family. And that got drawn to an extreme, to where it was nobody's business that I had a mother. Nobody needed to know she was my stepmother. You know, nobody needed to know about Trisha. Families don't talk about that. And if you said anything about it, you get your face slapped for you. You didn't step out of line in my household. You just didn't. To this day, I don't know why I didn't ask my father more, except basically I was told not to. A year later, Don had a routine physical at his doctor and discovered that he had cancer. He died within six months at 51 on December 29, 1980. Mary Ann recalled going on New Year's Eve to New York City for her father's wake. And while everyone was partying and celebrating the new year, she was mourning the death of her father. Don's untimely death meant that his third wife, to whom he had married only briefly, was in charge of his estate. His ex-wife continued to raise Mary Ann and James to adulthood. Don had almost no connection to his parents or siblings, and by extension, neither did his kids and Betty's family had been cut out by Marianne Wigmore. So that left the three of them on their own island. In 1987, another tragedy befell the family. 28-year-old Peter Newsom died unexpectedly of a drug overdose. With Peter gone, Patricia vanished, and John living a very independent life away from his family, that left Marianne and young James clinging to one another in a tight bond that persists even today. Which brings us to the digital age, when Marianne started to go public with her search for her long-lost sister. At the advent of the internet, Patricia Newsome was the first phrase she plugged into the search engine. She often felt alone in her search, 
as if she were the only person who remembered Patricia. She would look through gruesome photographs of unidentified Jane Doe's on websites, cross-referencing their vital statistics against Patricia's, hoping to find a match. We asked Mary Ann what she thought had happened to her sister. In my mind, there were only two possibilities, and that was murder and accidental death. And I felt like if it was an accidental death, I'd have known about it a long time before. In November of 2021, she created a Facebook group called Find Patricia Newsome, turning to her friends, family, and internet strangers for help. And help they did. And Mary Ann made a critical decision that would change the future of this case. That's how I found out about GED Match. Because somebody was like, well, are you on GED Match? I said, what's that? And that's ultimately what led to finding her. She created a NamUs profile for her sister, which brought it onto law enforcement's radar. She also submitted her DNA to GEDmatch, which made it searchable by the police and genetic researchers. All of that came to a head on April 10th, 2023, when she got the call of a lifetime. The East Haven, Connecticut Police Department had been trying to unravel a mystery that began 48 years prior. It was the summer of 1975 in East Haven, which is aptly named, being just east of New Haven, Connecticut, the second largest metro area in the state. Interstate 95 cuts right through East Haven as it winds its way up the New England coast. As you cruise down the highway, you'll see a bunch of big-box retail businesses lining either side. One of those businesses was Bradley's Department Store. Bradley's the Department Store with a difference. Difference? Could you explain that? I certainly could, but just take a look. Bradley's was a chain, and at its peak in the 90s, had over 100 locations throughout the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast. By 2001, Bradley's was defunct and closed all of their stores. They were similar to Sears, having electronics, household goods, appliances, clothing, etc. On the morning of August 16, 1975, a truck driver was making a routine delivery to the Bradleys on Frontage Street. As he was pulling in around back at 10 a.m., he noticed something peculiar in the drainage ditch. Upon closer look, he discovered a long, vaguely cylindrical object that was wrapped tightly in a canvas tarp. Coaxial cable, the kind of cable that goes from your wall to cable TV boxes, was used to cinch the tarp to the hidden object below. It looked kind of like a mummy. The driver knew right away that it was likely a human body that was being concealed, and he called the police immediately. A young detective arrived and cut a small hole in the tarp, through which he could make out a human leg. Police believed that the body had been killed elsewhere and brought to Bradley's. The wrapping job was so elaborate, police estimated it would have taken several hours. The body, still wrapped, was taken to the medical examiner's office that afternoon. It was bloated and showed signs of decomposition. News reports suggested that the body had been there between two days and a week. It was theorized that she was stuffed inside of a 30-inch drainage pipe upstream of where she was discovered, and that the heavy rains that Saturday morning dislodged her and carried her into clear view from the rear of the building. Once the tarp was removed, it revealed a young woman's body, fully nude, with no possessions or identification. 
Her head was wrapped in a towel and covered with a plastic trash bag, and her mouth was stuffed with a cloth gag. Her hands were bound together behind her back with wire, and her legs were similarly tied together at the ankles. Dr. Elliot Gross performed the autopsy on Sunday, August 17th at the University of Connecticut Medical Center in Farmington. He ruled the death a homicide by strangulation. They had no idea who she was. The police put out a description of the decedent to the public. She was a young, white or Latina female in her early 20s with shoulder-length brown hair and hazel eyes. She hadn't had any children. Her ears were pierced and she was wearing small gold circular earrings. Police thought that she might have a light mole on her chin. Her fingernails were short, her hands seemed unworn by labor, and her appearance was neat. Her dental work was extensive, which suggested that she came from a well-to-do family. Though her body was bloated from being in the water, police were still able to get good quality fingerprints. Armed with a description, dental records, fingerprints, and a blood type, police believed it would only be a matter of days before she was identified. As days turned into weeks, they created a composite sketch from the body, which was published in the local papers and circulated in the region. Investigators went to hotels and asked transient people whether they recognized the sketch. They sent flyers to numerous dental associations in hopes that a dentist would recognize their own work. The medical examiner thought that her nose may have had a surgical alteration, so they sent flyers to plastic surgeons in the region asking if they recognized her. Police talked to sex workers in New Haven, Bridgeport, and Hartford to see if they knew her. As weeks turned into months, the town was saddled with the responsibility of handling her body. They ended up burying her in State Street Cemetery in the nearby town of Hamden, Connecticut, where there were a number of indigent burials and unmarked graves. The town paid East Haven Memorial Funeral Home $600 to handle it. Though she lived on in the hearts of East Haven investigators who worked on the case, Jane Doe faded from the public view for 20 years. In May of 1994, the New Haven Register reported that the East Haven Police Department was revisiting the case. The police chief at the time, James Criscuolo, told the Register, this is a case that has always intrigued this department. He explained for the first time to the press a potential connection to a known killer. Nine years prior, in 1985, the wife of an East Haven policeman was thumbing through People magazine in the waiting room of her dentist's office when she came across a story, a feature on the murder of Amy Cave in Maine. Amy was a 59-year-old retired woman who was reported missing and found dead two days later, buried in a shallow grave near the shore. Her wrists were tied together with nylon rope, her feet were tied together with twine, and her mouth was stuffed with a plastic birdseed bag. Her head was covered in a white plastic bag, and a larger green bag was pulled over the white bag and extended down to her waist. She had been beaten and strangled. Her body was buried beneath a rock wall, very near a boat that was owned by Samantha Glenner. The body was not fully concealed and was discovered by authorities. Samantha Glenner, 
formerly known as Glenn Askborn, is transgender. I'll use the name Glenner to refer to her. Glenner was charged with Amy's murder and later convicted. But nine years prior, in 1975, Glenner lived in East Haven, about a mile from Bradley's department store on Frontage Street. At the same time that the body in the drainage ditch was discovered, police admitted, though, that Glenner was not on their radar at the time. East Haven police saw enough coincidences that they sought an interview. In 1985, Glenner went to prison and for many years rebuffed the requests from police. But in 1995, that door was opened. East Haven PD traveled to Thomaston State Prison in Maine and sat down with Glenner. Police later said that the interview was not too fruitful. Glenner denied any role in the killing, and they decided to hold off on a second conversation pending the results of a psychiatric evaluation of Glenner. They found Glenner unreliable. And that was where the case was left for another 25 years, but it was always on the mind of the East Haven Police Department. In 2020, East Haven police officers Joseph Murgo and David Emmerman were both promoted to captain, and they were both determined to restore the identity of their 1975 Jane Doe case. And with the rise of genetic genealogy, they believed that they could. My name is Captain Joseph Murgo with the East Haven, Connecticut Police Department. I first learned of the case in 2003, which was when I was hired as an East Haven police officer. And it's just, it's one of those cases that every investigator has in, in the course of their career, one of those cases where it just sticks with you. And this is that case for a lot of investigators who worked on the case, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. In 2003, a lot of the original investigators and detectives who had worked on the case were still employed by the police department. So it was fresh in a lot of their minds. So as a new officer, you learned about the case pretty much from day one. The medical examiner had kept a bone from her body, a pubic bone, but they were unable to recover any DNA from it. They needed something more. Common, reliable sources of DNA from older bodies are teeth and femur bones. The new captains needed to find her body. You know, I think at the time, there had been a few other cases around the country that were successfully identified over 47 years. One was like 52 years and they were making national news. If we got, you know, that femur bone that we were looking for, I was pretty confident. By 2022, they realized that she had been buried at State Street Cemetery, but it was no longer professionally maintained. Records were sparse to non-existent. Knowledge of the cemetery was being forgotten. So it's a cemetery that some of the gravestones date back to the 1600s. It's no longer in operation. You know, it was just one of those super old abandoned cemeteries. You know, in the 90s, it actually came under fire for some of the unethical things that the cemetery directors were doing at the time. When we made the decision to exhume her, the casket that they decided to put her in actually helped us a little bit, or so we thought. She was buried in a Ziegler casket, a metal Ziegler casket, which is a non-ornate type of casket, sort of is similar to the type of casket that you see maybe service members come back in from the war overseas when they put the caskets next to each other with the flags draped over them. Just that like non-ornate metal casket. 
and, and it, it was used back then for situations like this, where there's no family to purchase one of those more common, bigger caskets. The problem with the State Street Cemetery, once we got there, was that, again, it was non-operational since early 2000s. There's no cemetery director or cemetery association that maintains the property. And there's just a few volunteers who live in the area, took it upon themselves really to try to keep up with it. Um, there's a lot of like combat vets from earlier wars in there. So they do a good job of trying to keep those headstones clean and keep flags on the headstones when certain holidays come up like that. But the area, which is the uh, Southeast portion of the cemetery, that was not kept up at all. And if you looked at it from an aerial view, it just looks like a space in the cemetery that has never been utilized before. But those are all the locations of unmarked graves. Well, our first step was to knock back some of the overgrown vegetation that was in front of us. So we got the East Haven Public Works to knock back all of the vegetation. When we had the area cleared, we saw that, you know, there were some headstones that were covered in dirt and, and buried and everything else, but we didn't know exactly where she was buried. So when he took to Facebook and reached out to the Hamden, Connecticut local Facebook group and basically said, hey, we're looking to get in touch with anybody with intimate knowledge of the State Street Cemetery. And the Hamden community really, really showed up for us. They directed us to a guy named Randy Waven, who is the last living descendant of the State Street Cemetery Association. And when they passed the torch to him, they brought him to this general area and said, remember this area here, because there's a East Haven Jane Doe victim, homicide victim buried here. And at some point, somebody's going to want to locate her and find her and possibly exhume her. Well, he remembers that conversation, but he didn't remember the exact location of where she was buried. But he had intimate knowledge of the way the rows were organized and the way certain things were in the cemetery. So we met him there a week or two later, and he basically said to myself and another person who was very passionate with the case, Joe Vitale, basically said, if you go to the Hamden town clerk's office and you pull burial records from 1974 to 1976 and read them to me in succession, date succession, based off of the way the rows were situated back then, he'd be able to count from row A. And then once we get to the unidentified burial record, he'd be able to pinpoint where he believed she was buried. So they did just that, stationing a team at the cemetery and another at the town office. As they read the names, one by one, Randy Guavin took measurements at the cemetery and calculated where he believed their Jane Doe was buried. After reading the roll, he identified an area to focus upon. They used a tool called a sounding rod, which is basically a long metal rod with one end fashioned into something akin to a tuning fork that would reveal the material that it was striking against in the ground. They forced the sounding rod through the soil and wrapped it against the tops of the buried caskets, listening carefully to the tone it produced. We thought we were looking for a metal casket in a sea of wooden caskets, and he prodded down and we found what we thought to be her burial location. So we returned a couple of weeks later, you know, for the first initial meeting with Tony Grigo to the first exhumation is, is two years. We're talking 2020, then 2022. 
is when we decided to find our location. We're going to exhume the body. June 8th of 2022, we returned with a whole host of resources. Our East Haven Public Works, who, you know, we're going to obviously dig the hole. East Haven Memorial Funeral Home, who provided a brand new casket in the event that we damaged the casket once we got down to it. The medical examiner's office, who was going to be the person to actually get in, in the hole and collect that DNA that we needed. Our whole investigative services division, uh, who worked, you know, so hard on the case along with us and uh, a pastor from our local church, because it was important for us to hold a vigil once we located her and put her back. So we get there on June 8th. Somehow a ton of media found out about it. They were with us too. And we get down to the casket. We exhume the body. We open the casket. It is the body of a, of a young man. Finding the wrong body makes national news. Finding the right body makes only local news. Oh yeah, CNN picked it up. It, it, it was it was all over the place. It was actually all over the world that you know police department digs up wrong body in exhumation case. You know, it's just kind of like that's how the media is. You know, sucks to suck, guys. Like you know, you didn't put in the work you needed to, and you got the wrong body. But Captain Margo was undeterred. Despite this very public failure, he went back to the drawing board and came up with an even more sophisticated plan, knowing that it would be difficult to obtain a third search warrant should he come up empty-handed again. So a week or so later, we returned, but this time we came back with an employee from the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, who brought a ground-penetrating radar device, a GPR Know, which is basically an x-ray machine on wheels just to go comb the area in search of that metal casket that we were looking for. And what we found that day was even more shocking. Based on the burial records, we thought we were only looking for about 10 caskets in the area, one being a metal casket, the rest being old wooden caskets. We found about 35 caskets in the area. A lot of them were metal Ziegler caskets. A lot of them were stacked on top of each other and packed close next to each other. So as, as you can imagine, I mean, it was a daunting task trying to pinpoint the one casket that we wanted to exhume. They returned on Friday, July 1st, 2022, with the same large team that they had assembled less than a month prior. Their digging location was about 12 feet east of their first exhumation. All eyes were upon them as they excavated the soil. They revealed a metal casket, a Ziegler, and when they opened its lid, there was an autopsy sheet covering the body. Michelle Clark, who was there representing the medical examiner's office, exclaimed, this is a good sign. But they weren't home free yet. Many of the bodies buried in the area were unclaimed and might have a similar sheet. Once she confirmed that there was no pubic bone, it was just, it, it's, it's, it's really hard to describe. I mean, there's just an overwhelming sense of relief not only because we were one step further to solving the case, but just to know that all of our efforts leading up to this moment were, were not for, for nothing. It was just an overwhelming amount of work. And I can't take the, you know, just the credit for it. I mean, this was such a group effort on part of our investigative services division and every detective that worked on this case along the way for the last 47 years, it was just finally hopefully coming to the pinnacle moment of the investigation. I mean, we knew that we just needed to get this better sample of DNA and then technology was going to take it from there. So to know that we found the right casket and the right person 
So I, th- I think we all had tears in our eyes at that moment. Identifinders, the lab that they contracted to perform the genealogical analysis, subcontracted their lab work to a Canadian company. So Captain Murgo had to get the femur to Canada. They carefully packaged it and entrusted it to FedEx. I was terrified because FedEx has lost packages on me in the past. Oh, this is probably the most you know important, valuable package that you then could ever imagine. The, the people at the counter weren't very confident that it was actually going to get past the border. You know, I, I said, well, can you tell them that we're a police department, that we're investigating a homicide, and that she's a Jane Doe, unidentified person? And she's like, yeah, they're not really going to care about all, all of that. One of the checkboxes is, um, is this a human body part? And I'm sure 99.9% of the time, uh, the answer is no. In our particular case, the answer is yes. You know, they gave us tracking information that we stalked every single minute till it got to its destination. And it got hung up at the border for a few days. And I was like, this is just another, another thing in our tale of mysteries here that's going to go wrong. But it ended up getting to its destination. And that was last fall. Once it got to where it had to go, which is Lakehead University in Canada, things progressed pretty quickly, considering. We're grateful. Thank you, Trilex. The lab was able to quickly develop a DNA profile of their Jane Doe and turn it over to identifinders for them to begin their genealogical work. But I, I saw that I had gotten a voicemail, and when I saw the name on the voicemail, I was like, oh man, is this the phone call that, I'm, that we're all waiting for? She left a message and said, I have some very important news. I need you to call me back as soon as you get this. And my heart drops right then and there because I knew that just by the tone of her voice that she was about to share some good news. So I called her back and she pretty much said, you are not going to believe this. We have just identified Jane Doe. We have found her sister and the amount of coverage on this missing person is amazing. Because Marianne was working simultaneously on her end to get the word out about her missing sister, Colleen Fitzpatrick, with a modicum of internet sleuthing, was able to immediately verify the truth of their DNA discovery. By the time I talked to her, she already had a pretty good idea of who her family was, what some of the circumstances were, you know, how the family relocated from Idaho Falls, Idaho, to the East Coast. She had all of that pretty much for me during that initial phone call. So I was blown away. I mean, it was just such an overwhelming moment to just to finally be able to put a name to our Jane Doe, who didn't have a name for 48 years. So yeah, just an incredible, incredible feeling, pinnacle moment in my career for sure. The next step was to break the news to Patricia's now 58-year-old sister, who was living in Northeast Tennessee. 700 miles from East Haven, Connecticut. We decided that we wanted to get her the information as soon as possible and not have to worry about travel arrangements and getting there and knocking on her door. It would have been nice, but it was just more important to get her the information immediately. So we called the Sullivan County, Tennessee Sheriff's Department. I was lucky enough to get a detective on the phone who actually had intimate knowledge of the case. As soon as I said the name, he immediately knew who I was talking about. He said, give me 15 minutes. I'm going to shoot over to her house. Now I'm going to get you on the phone with her as soon as I get there. I was standing on the front porch and the road ends like right there. So this car comes up, gentleman gets out of the car, just one person. So like I said, not Mormons or anything. I'm like, hey, can I help you? 
He said, yeah, you're Marianne? He said, Detective Peters. And I was like, oh, okay, how you doing? Because the last time I saw him, I, I went up to the sheriff's department to get my DNA for comparison to a different case. And at the time he and I had spoken and I told him what was going on. So he pulled up and I thought that he was there to get my DNA again because Trooper Dunphy had told me that I would need to resubmit. That's what I thought Detective Peters was doing at my house. And he said, I have somebody who wants to talk to you for a minute, which made me really nervous. It was about 15 minutes, you know, to the second. My phone rang. I was in the chief's office with uh, myself, deputy chief, my chief, and another investigator. And he put Captain Murgo on the line. He said, Captain, I have Marianne Collette here on the other end of the phone. Marianne, this is Captain Murgo. He has some information that he wants to tell you. And Captain Murgo was like, we found your sister. I don't even know how I said it. I don't even know what I said. Uh, we're all choking back tears. I mean, it's such an emotional moment. Um, but I basically told her that her sister had been identified. That she was um, a Jane Doe homicide victim that had been discovered in 1975. And I, I lost it. I started shaking and crying. We were all crying. It was just an emotional moment for every single one of us. It's a moment that I'll never forget. It is so surreal. It is almost unbelievable, especially when you start to know what a shot in the dark it was finding her. Marianne was deeply moved to learn that in her 48-year search, she was not alone. That is incredibly beautiful. To know that there was this whole town of people, and we're talking about a lot of people invested in this, that cared so much about her and didn't even know who she was. To me, that's mind-blowing. Because you do, you feel so alone. Because for the longest time, it was just me. Just to find out that so many total strangers care that much, it's really, really, really hard to describe. Because if so many people hadn't cared, she just would have been forgotten about, and I never would have found it. There's no way I would have found it. So in a very bizarre way, this was almost a best-case scenario for me. Because had she not been left that way, it maybe wouldn't have stuck in so many people's minds for so long, to the point where several generations of detectives couldn't let it go. Things moved quickly. This dynamite news would be difficult to keep quiet for long, and Captain Murgo wanted Marianne to help him announce it to the world. But what was more important to us, more important than the press conference, was to get her up here as soon as possible, bring her to the cemetery so she could have a few minutes with her sister at her resting place, which is what she had been waiting for 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 so long. They gave us a police escort to the cemetery because... They wanted me to have some privacy with my sister so that there wouldn't be any press around. If we did it afterwards, press was going to be wanting to use the State Street Cemetery as a backdrop. So we go up to the cemetery, and it was like a grayish day, okay? Not raining yet, but, you know, one of those gray days. Now, my sister and I love the rain. We just do. We'll take dancing in the rain, quite literally. So they walked us over to the graveside, and... I asked him to say a prayer with me, and then they left us there so that we could kind of be by ourselves. Before they left, I was standing there at her grave. I looked up, and I said, I got you, sis. Here comes the rain. 
even one of the detectives was like, that was creepy. The skies opened up on us, poured on us. And after learning a little bit about Patricia, she loved the rain, which was incredible. So you can imagine Marianne felt that that was her sister finally reuniting with her and, and the family. The group moved from State Street Cemetery back to East Haven Town Hall to face a sea of cameras and microphones. I was absolutely terrified. My teeth were literally chattering as we walked in the door. I don't know, whatever came out of my mouth came out of my mouth. But I was in complete terror. My husband was behind me and my daughter was standing next to me. And I don't think I could have done that without them there. Captain Murgo stepped up to the mic. Today, I am proud to announce that we can finally give Jane Doe her name back. After many setbacks and challenges, I am proud to say that in close partnership with Identifinders International, we can positively identify the victim of this crime as Patricia Melody Newsom. At this moment, they revealed a poster board that showed side-by-side the composite sketch of East Haven Jane Doe with the actual photograph of Patricia. The similarities were immediately evident. I am East Haven Mayor Joseph A. Carflora. Today is a very emotional day for many, especially Patricia's sister, Marianne, and her family. I have watched this process very closely since I became mayor of East Haven. The professionalism and tenacity of everyone involved in this case, past and present, was so very impressive. And you have provided the highest level of professional effort, honor, and respect that this process required. On behalf of the town, I want to thank each and every one of you. In closing, to the family of Patricia, I want to offer the resources of my office moving forward in any way, shape, or form. I do hope and pray that today brings your family some peace. There are thousands of Jane and John Doe cases around the country, even more around the world. And with that comes family members searching for answers and justice for the ones they love. This case is a perfect example of what can be achieved if you never lose hope. We now have the tools and the resources to solve every single one of these cases. The term Jane and John Doe can be a thing of the past. Captain Murgo was stunned how quickly the results came back from the genetic genealogist, and it was in no small part due to Mary Ann's efforts. Colleen Fitzpatrick talks about how one late night she was ready to go to bed after getting the information and submitting it to GenMatch. She's on her way to bed and she's like, let me just check to see. And she was blown away at the amount of centimorgans that our sample shared with a woman named Marianne Collette. And it was just under 3,000 CMs. And to share that much DNA with somebody, it could be no other than the person's full sibling. There it was. It was like, boom, it solved. It was, I don't want to say easy because just, you know, sequencing of DNA in this esoteric field in general is not easy to say the least, but it's usually not that easy to find such a close relative on a missing person case. Marianne has a message to other families out there who are looking for a missing loved one. I would love to find a way just for people that are seeking missing people, even if they don't want to do, do the genealogy thing or whatever, just to have their DNA put into GenMatch. She encourages other people in her situation to remain resolute. 
persistence. Keep going. Don't stop because there's a lot of times you want to stop. And most importantly, do not listen to the naysayers. If somebody looks at you like you're crazy, seeking attention, whatever, don't let it get in your head. Just roll on with it. Families don't want their dirty laundry hung on the, on the lines. They really don't. So sometimes families will try to stop you because uncomfortable things come to light. I wondered how Marianne might have found Patricia had DNA not made the connection. Law enforcement had entered Patricia's information into NamUs and Doe Network as a Jane Doe, two websites that maintain databases of unidentified remains. Though the listing has now been removed, the date Patricia's body was found would have been entered, and the estimated age, 20 to 30 years, would have as well. Patricia was 18 when she died, two years outside that range, but perhaps close enough to warrant a look. She was found in Connecticut, a state which Marianne had no particular connection to. Other than the boarding school, Patricia last lived in New Jersey. The composite sketch, based upon her remains, was uploaded to both websites. It looks a bit older than Patricia's 18 years, but there are some striking similarities. For a connection to have been made, Marianne would have needed to find that profile, seen the similarities in the composite, and made the decision to reach out to East Haven authorities. Marianne created her own missing person profile in NamUs in 2021 for Patricia. And so both a missing profile and a Jane Doe profile existed in the same system at the same time. But the connection was not made until April of 2023. Anyone using the site could have made that potential link. After the dust settled from their press conference, the East Haven PD returned to their files to see if knowing Patricia's identity would change their understanding of the case. Joe Izzo was the initial investigator at the time, and, and he never gave up on the case. He's 81 years old now. We just had him in yesterday just to pick his brain, just to show him some of the reports that he submitted at the time. You know, he was still a wealth of knowledge and that case just never, never left him. So as you can imagine, he was thrilled to find out that we had finally identified her. But it was important to us to get him back in here just to get eyes on some of his initial reports, just because of how accurate some of the information was. Though Captain Murgo was unable to confirm this, it appears that some of the initial tips and police reports included a name, Patricia which transformed them from subjective rumors into credible allegations. There was some correspondence that came in in 1975 from several different people who claimed to have intimate knowledge of the crime, who claimed to have been in conversations with other people in this homicide came up. Some of the information that was brought up, you know, seemed at the time as irrelevant information but now that we've identified Patricia, we know where she's from, and we obviously know her, her name, and, you know, in particular, her first name, some of the information that came out back then was extremely accurate. And it was more than one piece of information that's accurate, right? And you get one piece of information that hits it on the head, you know, it's valuable. But when you get two or more pieces of unknown information back then that turn out to be accurate, now, once we identified it, then you start to see that they may have had actual intimate knowledge of the case back then. 
it's been frustrating to learn that a lot of the people who came out initially that had this relevant information that I spoke of earlier, they have died, you know, and it's just a testament to, to the life they lived. You know, a lot of the people that came out were involved in criminal activity and drugs and, you know, otherwise abusive sort of behavior. So that's sort of the challenging part of this investigation. A lot of the people that we think have relevant information or, or the most relevant information are no longer with us. We asked Captain Murgo if there was any potential DNA evidence retrieved from Patricia's body when it was exhumed, like fingernail clippings. No, they, uh, they did a pretty good job at examining her body once we exhumed her. and There was nothing viable, nothing. There was no chance in getting any other DNA from her other than the DNA that she, she possessed herself. We asked what kind of manpower was being committed to the investigation since identifying Patricia. We're a small police department. We're about 60 sworn officers. We have six detectives and we have reassigned two of the detectives to focus solely on this investigation. He's still trying to pin down the exact time frame that Patricia disappeared. It's hard to explain. She hadn't been heard from or seen since replacing it at 1973 to 1974. So that would mean two different summers, definitely one, but possibly two different summers where I'm sure they wouldn't allow their student body to live on campus over the summer for those, you know, two or three months. So she would have had to have come home at least during the summer of 73 and 74, you know, but definitely during the summer, you think of, of 74, if they hadn't heard from her, you know, for those two years, then she was found dead in East Haven in the summer of, of 75. So three years of her being unaccounted for, that, that's why it leads us to believe like if the boarding school theory does exist and she met up with a friend and she tried to get to Maine, she likely got to Maine, maybe stayed in Maine for a while and then possibly tried to get back from Maine to, you know, New Jersey or maybe back to the boarding school, you know, because if you're unaccounted for it for two summers, you had to have done something. So maybe she was, you know, in this area with different people for a couple of years. You know, that's unknown. East Haven investigators are in search of any transfer paperwork or school records of Patricia in both Morgantown, New Jersey, and Sullivan County or Monticello, New York. Captain Murgo believes that her religious upbringing might give them an advantage in their search. Catholic schools may not get rid of their records like normal schools would. You know, even if we found her name in a logbook that was dusty in the basement somewhere, I'm sure we could find a confirmation or some other type of ceremonial activity that Patricia was involved in if she went to a Catholic school. Marianne said that the only reference to Monticello, New York, was in a text message from her stepmother. We asked Captain Murgo how confident he was in that information. We are going to do our due diligence and vet out every bit of information that we do get. But again, you know, her stepmother or her credibility has come into question over the years. So with that information only being provided by the stepmother, it's hard to say whether or not it's accurate and relevant or if that was just a theory that she gave to family many years ago you know, to soften what actually happened to Patricia. There's another strange memory from the family 
from Trisha's older brother, John. One of her brothers received a letter from Patricia. And this was right around the time right before she had gone missing. And he allegedly tried to write her back. And when he sent a letter back to whatever was on the return address, he's not sure if he sent the letter to the Monticello area, like we believe, or if he sent the letter to Vermont, where it is also a theory that she possibly went to a school in Vermont. He doesn't remember. But when he sent the letter back, the letter came back to him as undeliverable. It's hard to know what to make of this returned letter. Was it sent after she'd run away? Or maybe she was enrolled in that school and sent to another one. The family hasn't been able to produce the letter. It's likely been discarded after so many years. East Haven police have searched through their old court records and police files for any mention of Patricia Newsom, But many of those records are now gone. They don't retain records of low-level crimes. We asked if he had an operating theory on where the killer lived. We do tend to think that whoever killed her was from the area, whether or not they picked her up somewhere else while she hitchhiked, you know, that's yet to be determined, but we do. And again, we're going off of some of the initial reporting that was done when the case was hot and realizing just how accurate some of the information that came in was. We do think her killer was local. The Glenner theory still looms large in the minds of investigators. That was a suspect that they focused in on in the 80s and 90s, based solely off the similarities in both homicides. And the similarities are striking, you know, especially how both victims were bound and gagged in intricate knots and wrapped and covered in bags and things like that. Pretty similar. And the connection to Maine was very interesting once we identified Patricia, right? Because there is a theory and it can't be proven yet that Patricia attended a boarding school in, you know, the Monticello, New York area, Sullivan County area, allegedly met a friend who had family in Maine and her and the friend possibly hitchhiked from the boarding school to Maine. So, you know, it was interesting to hear of the connection to Maine with the strongest suspect this case has ever had and with Patricia possibly headed to Maine too. But, but that's pretty much where it ends, you know? Yes, Asborn lived in Maine and lived in East Haven. Dumped the body in a pretty close proximity to where he lived. They were never able to discover any other evidence that related him to the crime. So it's hard to tell whether or not those aspects of the crime were just, you know, coincidences or if he was, you know, one of the main suspects. We can't rule him out as a suspect, but we can't close the case and say, okay, well, he's the one that's responsible for a case closed. Even if Glenner were eventually found to be responsible, there would be no trial. Glenner just died in October of 2022. There are so many unanswered questions in this case, particularly about the crucial time frame in Trisha's life between the time she was 15 and 18. First and foremost, what boarding school did she go to? Why was she sent there? How long did she attend? And what was the school's reputation? If she did, in fact, run away from boarding school, when did she leave and why? If she left with a friend, what is their name? Is Maine a possible connection? And lastly, what did she do between the time she ran away 
and the time that she was found murdered. Marianne is haunted by this. With me, it all comes down to not so much who killed my sister. It's more who was she there at the end, which sounds it sounds strange, but what led her to be there is my question. We want anybody who has known her at all, who's ever known her, to reach out to us because we need to start from, you know, from, from basically from day one moving forward. So anybody that ever crossed paths with Patricia, anyone who may have gone to school with her, even if it was the school back in New Jersey before she was sent to the boarding school, we want them to reach out to us. And if Patricia ever made it to Maine and anybody has any remembrance of her in Maine, we want them to reach out to us as well. I wondered what confluence of factors led to Patricia having not been reported missing. One of the most significant is that her biological mother, Betty, had died when she was 11 years old. Betty was the center of the family, and her death left a gaping hole. The second is that Don and his new wife, Marianne Wigmore, had limited contact with Betty's extended family, particularly Patricia's maternal grandparents. Third is that Don didn't consider raising the children a fundamental part of his responsibility. He was focused on his career, and the woman that he married, Marianne Wigmore, had a difficult relationship with Don's teenage daughter. Still, the fact that she was never reported missing is hard to swallow. I think it was a symptom of the times. I think it was a symptom of my dad just thinking she's pissed off and she'll get back to me. I'll hear from her. And I think there, it was also part of don't blow the image, the upper middle class, nice Dutch colonial, all that. I just think really that what it came down to is my stepmother just disregarded her. And I think that my dad really did think that she would get back old him at some point. Perhaps the news that Trisha had run away was welcome, a problem that seemed to work itself out. And lastly, Dawn died five years after Patricia disappeared leaving only her stepmother and siblings as the potential torchbearers in the search. But Marianne always knew that if Trisha were in real trouble, she had someone to call. I just don't understand why she wouldn't just call my dad if she wanted to come home. I really don't. So the whole thing about her being in Connecticut, you wouldn't think it would be this hard once you found her. You wouldn't think it would be this challenging to find out what happened in the last couple of years, but... I've said before that I think she was a victim waiting to happen. And I think that's because she was a vulnerable young lady that had no dad or older brother or anybody out there to protect her. And that leaves you in a pretty bad spot. Her sheet metal casket has held her body in purgatory for 48 years. She will be exhumed a second and final time. And her body will be cremated in accordance with the wishes of her family. Marianne will keep Patricia's cremains with her for a while in Tennessee because, she explains, quite frankly, we've been apart for too long. She'll reunite Patricia with her mother, Betty, and the rest of the Clinton clan in Philadelphia at Holy Sepulchre Cemetery, scattering her ashes amongst the well-cared grounds and gravestones. It'll be a homecoming for Marianne as well. She has never visited the grave of her mother the mother she lost at three years old. Marianne, looking to the future, said, That is everything to me. Tell me that's not beautiful. 
Marianne may take a moment to reflect on the few memories that she still has of her late sister, her love of singing, her favorite band, Simon and Garfunkel, and her favorite song, The Sound of Silence. When I say that girl was smart, that girl was very, very smart. Almost too smart, because you couldn't get by on with her. <laughs> She'd just be like, nice try. That she was a very loving, caring human being. She would have been a force for good in the world. I really kind of idolized her when she was younger. I guess that's kind of normal for her sister. I don't know. But I also feel like she protected me in a lot of ways. She had a comforting presence. You could talk to her when things got turbulent. I think she just tried to make things better for me, but she had no latitude. Marianne remembers Patricia as a pacifist and a budding hippie a flower child who wore her hair long and loved dancing in the rain. And she'll also remember her as a jokester. There was this thing that used a toy. It was a laugh box, okay? Like a little square box, and it was in a little bag. And this thing laughed. It just made laughter sounds. It was like having a laugh track in your pocket. It is hideous. Absolutely horrid. She terrorized me with this thing. Oh my goodness. And she'll remember the words that Patricia taught her from one of her high school language classes. Patricia spoke French. And the one thing she taught me was Camille la bouche. She was always telling me to shut my mouth. Always. She thought that was big fun. She'd have me running around telling people that. She was a sister. That's what they did. But this playful, childlike Patricia was lost to time and supplanted by another image. It's hard in a way. Because you can't have a discussion about this without the words bound, naked, dumped, ditch, tarp, all those words. And you have the fear that that's what she'll be reduced to. And you know, for a while, maybe that's what she was reduced to, but not anymore. Because now she's not Jane Doe. She's not East Haven Jane Doe anymore. She's Patricia. And that makes a difference. Marianne said, whatever led up to her murder, that was one moment in time. And there have been decades and decades and decades of love shown to this girl that desperately needed it. She was a lovely human being. I know she would be really happy to know how well-loved she was. Even if she wasn't well-loved in life, she surely was in death. Patricia Newsom's killer may still be out there, anxiously watching the recent developments in the case, perhaps even listening to this episode, wondering whether the remaining puzzle pieces will be assembled into a complete picture of a conviction. Someone took Patricia's life, and perhaps there is time left yet for justice. If you have any information about the murder of Patricia Newsom, or maybe met her at some point in your life, I encourage you to reach out to Captain Joe Murgo at the East Haven Police Department at 203-468-3820. If you'd rather reach out to me, you can email me at hello at murdershetold.com and I'll make sure Captain Murgo gets your information. And if you could do me a favor, please share the blog post, share Patricia's story, share this episode with people. Let's help them get the information they need. A detailed list of sources and photos from this episode and more can be found at MurderSheTold.com. 
A very special thanks to Mary Ann Collette for sharing her memories with me, and to Captain Joe Murgo from the East Haven Police Department for spending so much time with us on this episode. Thank you to Byron Willis for his writing and research. If you have a suggestion or a correction, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at hello at murdershetold.com. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder She Told. Thank you for listening. Thank you.